Well, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews, so uh, we had a great week last week. I have a lot of people asking, um, you know, about the service and stuff, because all of you went to one service, you probably didn't stay for two, but um, they were equal, so if you were at one, um, the other one was just as equally full, which the takeaway from that is, we're glad we did two. So everybody's like, did we need two? Yeah, we did. Um, so um, we're excited about that. I want to pray for those people that made decisions to rededicate, to, to follow Jesus. And, and um, yeah, whether they came forward or not, we know that that was happening and we had both. So keep that in prayer. So we come to Hebrews chapter 10 and we're going to move to verse, all the way down to verse 25, which is, these are some of my favorite verses in the entire book of, of Hebrews. Uh, The title is God's Plan for Restored Fellowship. The writer, the author, is talking to these people that thought that maybe they needed to go back to the temple and to get re-engaged in all those sacrifices and be coming to the the priest and the high priest on the Day of Atonement to take care of them. What are they going to do about their sin if they're not going to the high priest? And so this is written to try and correct that that thought of returning, leaving, returning to uh, the law and ab- abandoning Jesus. And so he writes this. Chapter 10, we'll put it this way. Hebrews 1.1 1, 1 through chapter 10, uh, verse, uh, down to verse 18. This is all kind of the doctrinal section. As you get to chapter 10, verse 19, you get the therefore of it all. And so I can't wait to get there. But let's go ahead and begin our study. We're going to move fairly quickly through this. We have communion as well. But this is all of these points and all of these themes that we're going to talk about. These are things that we've dug into um, throughout our, our study through these first nine chapters. So as we move into chapter 10, he's just going to begin to pull it together um, so we can see some of these final conclusions So let's read verses 1 through 4 where we are introduced to the Levitical sacrifices were shadows. Not the substance, they were shadows. For the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they have not ceased to be offered. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Now, we hear that and that's familiar language to us. We're like, yes, that's right. But I want you to just try and rewind history 2,000 years and put yourself in their place. You've had the law of Moses. You've had, you know, Exodus. And you've had uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy that's told you how to function. And you've seen when the nation has gone astray and not obeyed the law of Moses, what happened. And now you have somebody saying, this is fulfilled. And it was not able to do what really needs to be done. It came up short. Now, it did it come up short in what God intended for it to do, and it did not come up short in what God knew it would do. It accomplished that perfectly, which was to provide a lot of shadows, a lot of reminders of what was coming in Christ, and then to also show mankind you need somebody to stand in the gap for you and to cleanse you of your sins. So 
This is the, the, the underlying thought that's going on in the book of Hebrews. But verse one, it talks of how shadows of better things to come. So the little Levitical sacrifices were shadows and they were shadows of better things to come. Hebrews chapter eight, verse five, picks up this word of shadow as well. So if it sounds familiar, it's because we've read it and we've already studied it. So this is something, and when you see a shadow, you know that's not the substance, you know that's not the very image, you know that is representative of something that is real and that is substantive. So that was what the law and all the sacrifices were. They were shadows. But he says that these things are not the image. Colossians 2.17, I have quoted this verse, we have looked at it so many times, but Paul writing about the feasts and the festivals and the new moons and the Sabbaths and what you can eat and what you can't eat says, which are shadows of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So we don't have to sit and ponder, well, what's the shadow? The shadow is uh, the Old Testament covenant and the sacrifices, and what's the substance? What's creating the shadow? It's Christ on the cross. That's the very image. That's the substance that is being referred to. And shadows can never replace the body that casts the shadow. It would be strange to do this. Jesus is the image. He is the, the substance of what we hope for. Verse, at the end of verse 1, we see that the Levitical sacrifices, they were unable to perfect the worshiper. He says, which they offer year by year, make those who approach perfect. So you can't do that. They can never do this, right? It's never going to happen. And so he's, he's just arguing with them. You can't, why would you go back? These can never make you perfect. To come near God, you must be made perfect. And these sacrifices are unable to do that. God's standard to approach him is perfection. We all fall short of that. Does the law is the law capable to make you perfect? No. No, it's not. We just read it there. Verses 2 and 3. We, we, here we find that it's unable to remove that, our consciousness of sin. And I want to slow down just a second here. We've talked about this before, our conscious, um, aware, our conscious awareness that we are sinners. Um, and, you know, your conscience is informed by something. And then you're, you're either condemned or you're approved based upon that standard that you've been informed by. And he says that the law was unable to uh, uh, remove that awareness, that consciousness of sins. Now this is interesting because we still sin. And when we sin, we are aware that I just sinned. So it can't be talking about you losing your temper, realizing you were out of control, you sinned, you need to ask the Lord to, to forgive you for that and, and then making it right with that person. So what is it talking about when it says that, and where we're headed is that the gospel today, the new covenant, removes that consciousness of sin. What is it referring to? Think of it this way. Although you maybe have yelled at that person or you did something you weren't supposed to do, and you were broken over it, and there's a place for that, James would say, you know, uh, to lament and howl and weep. I mean, that, that's serious brokenness over sin as a follower of Jesus Christ. But you know what you've never thought of doing once? 
You never have thought, Lord, I sinned again. I think you're going to have to send Jesus back down. And I think he needs to go to the cross again because I sinned. You've never thought that. If you have, don't ever think it again. That's not, that's wrong. That's never going to take place. Because Jesus did it once for all, as we're going to read in just a moment. Nor have you probably done this. You never have sinned. And, you know, oh, I've got to go apologize to this person. I shouldn't have yelled at them in this way. And then responded and said, okay, and now I need to go sacrifice a lamb. You haven't done that. Why? Because your conscience is clear. You know that in coming to Jesus Christ, that when he said on the cross, it is finished, you know what? It is finished. So you're not trying to offer him up again. You're not trying to bring a sacrifice There are some other things that maybe we can begin to deal with in condemnation and thinking that it's not sufficient or I need to do something more. And the answer is no. Jesus doesn't have to do any more work of sacrificing. It is completely done. And so we are made perfect in Christ Jesus. So it removes that awareness. In verse 4, he says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Okay, we know that Jesus had to come. We know he was a better sacrifice. But what does that verse mean to somebody living before Jesus, dying on the cross and rising from the dead? It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So if you're living in 500 BC and you are bringing your sacrifices in to the temple, and, and the Day of Atonement is happening, what does this mean? Well, see, those, those sacrifices prior to Christ's coming, they were a covering. They were temporary. But the real force of those sacrifices was looking forward to what Jesus would do. So today, here we are, 2,000 years after his death, burial, and resurrection, we look back on the finished work of the cross. But if you're living in 500 BC, you are looking forward to what God is going to do. Now, you don't know what we know today, right? You don't, you don't know all that we understand of, of you know, Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. It's, there's glimpses of it, but they don't have the full understanding of that. But they did worship in faith. In faith, when they brought that lamb, when they came on the Day of Atonement, in faith they came believing that the Lord was going to accept them. But if if Jesus never came, then those sacrifices would have never even provided a covering for them. The power of them was that they were worshiping in faith and doing what God had called them to do, knowing, God knowing that one day, he would provide the fulfillment. So, um, in a very real sense, both the, under the old covenant and today, we all look to Jesus. We look with a clear understanding. They looked not understanding all that was going to take place. So without Jesus, yeah, the, those sacrifices in 500 BC weren't going to do anything for you. But because Jesus was coming and the Lord knew he was going to come, they provided that covering until Jesus could once and for all take care of that. Look at verses 5 through 10. He's now going to transition and he's going to begin to talk about, well, knowing the limitations of these sacrifices, the Lord provided the Lord himself, Jesus. And so he's going to, he's going to quote from the Psalms here. So verse 5, therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. 
but a body you have prepared for me. So he's quoting from Psalm 40. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offering for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. So the first offerings under the law, that it might be established under the second, which is the sacrifice of Jesus. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So he's quoting from uh, the Septuagint. And we're hearing of God's dissatisfaction with the sacrifices that were in place, that he established. And you're like, well, why did he do that? Well, yeah, so that's a big question, but I think God knew he was, it was a progressive uh, work. He's leading people into this understanding. Um, and so all of this imagery is being established, is becoming a part of their mind. So, but, but if he wasn't satisfied, why do you do that? I'll, I'll call it a stopgap measure. You've all done this. We've all done this. You've made decisions. You've put things into place. You've made this decision, although you really know this is the better thing, but at least we got to start here and we'll work our way into it. We do this kind of thing in life all of the time. And the Lord with the law, he says, all right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to put this in here, but ultimately, that's not really what I want. Do you know that there was never a willing sacrifice in, under the old covenant? Not once did you find a little lamb or a bull or an oxen or a, you know, a, a turtle or a pigeon, a turtle dove coming in and being willing to give their life. They were brought there. there it wasn't obedience. You don't look at the animals like, oh, it's so obedient. No, that's not it. That's not the point. It's a worshiper that's being obedient. And the worshiper led by the Lord, is imposing their will upon that animal and is bringing it in. The animal's not being obedient, and it's not according to its will. And the Lord says, I don't have any pleasure in these things. But what he does have pleasure in is the Lamb of God. Now, Jesus, when he died on the cross, different, isn't it? Because he came, and you find it three times it refers to this word will in those verses 5 through 10. The Lord willingly came to do this. He says, Lord, I, you know, if it's possible, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. I am willing to submit to this. I will be obedient. And so the Lord um, found pleasure in that because it was an obedient and willing sacrifice, and it was a perfect sacrifice. The animals could only provide a, a temporary covering. They could not make the worshiper perfect nor remove their, their sin on its own. So the father prepares a sufficient sacrifice. So when Jesus is being born in Bethlehem, the Lord is forming the sacrifice. And he's, this, this one is coming, that's the lamb of God. Even the angel the, uh, spoke this to Joseph <clears throat> when he says this, this son is going to take away the sins of the world. So, so this is the, the picture that we see. Jesus came to do the will of God, to atone for sin. And it did bring pleasure to the Lord. This did satisfy his justice. He looked for nothing more. Animals were not willing participants, but Jesus 
was a willing lamb of God. Nobody took his life. Remember him saying this? Nobody takes my life. I lay it down. And he, will, he submitted himself to the Father's will. The Old Testament sacrifices, they were not the final solution. But Jesus is. When he, Jesus was on the cross, one of the last things he said was what? It is finished. Paid in full. There's nothing more that needs to be done. And so we can rejoice in this. In verses 11 through 14, we're going to see that in contrast to the other priests who are busy, busy, busy. And that's kind of, if you, as we read this, if you can just think of perpetual motion going on in the temple and then contrast that with Jesus sitting down. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So the ministry of Christ, it requires no more work. That's not to say he's not interceding for us, he's that he's not working with us, but the work of redemption, he's sitting down. He's saying judgment's going to come. He's going to make his enemies his footstool. So, I mean, do you get the picture here, right? You have a picture of somebody sitting down, doing no work, and in just a moment, he's going to get his footstool out and he's going to put his feet up, and that will happen at the second coming of Christ. And that judgment will be done. That is in contrast to the perpetual motion that's going on in the tabernacle. I mean, listen to it. Every priest, every one of them, they stand. What's Jesus doing? He's sitting Ministering daily and offering repeatedly. Jesus did it once and for all. Their sacrifice cannot take away his sins, uh, sins, but his sacrifice was once for all and it perfected everyone. So you have this radical contrast between the two, which is meant to say, why are you going back? Why are you going to go back there? It's not going to provide what you are looking for. We have been perfected forever. Meaning, we have a perfect standing with Jesus from the first moment we come to salvation to the day when we are standing with him. Do you know you will not have a better standing with Jesus on the day you are in front of him than you have right now positionally? Now, if you want to talk about the work of sanctification in our life, that means that work of becoming more and more like Christ Jesus, that is an ongoing work. But our standing before the Lord, our, we often will call it our legal standing. Like think of being in a courtroom. We're standing before the judge. When Jesus looks at you as a, one that has professed Christ as your Lord and Savior, he sees somebody that is as righteous as his son. And that's hard for us to compute, isn't it? But that's what happened. Jesus, it was a substitutionary atonement. He took on our sinfulness and we get his righteousness. And so we have the righteousness, this is what scripture says, we have, not we will get, we have the righteousness of God in your own efforts? No. Really important, that little prepositional phrase. What does it say? In Christ Jesus. In Christ, we have been made perfect. So verse 14, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So you can't go out and offer another sacrifice 
That's not going to do anything. You've already been perfected. You know, you, you can't, there's nothing you can do. I mean, repent, sure, but we're not getting saved again. We're just maintaining our walk and our relationship with the Lord. You know, you, you get married, but, you know, maybe you've noticed you have not perfectly kept your vows. Some of you, maybe that side of the room, I don't know. These guys are probably okay, but have you noticed that, you know, that you have not been perfect in your marital vows? You don't have to go get married again, but you, got, you, got, you can't ignore it either. You've got to deal with that. In the same way, we are in a relationship with the Lord. We are united with him, and our standing before him is perfect. We are a work in progress, though, in terms of how we live everyday life. But our standing before the Lord, we are perfect. So this is what the takeaway is. There's nothing more you can do. Well, you know, I've got to sit and I've got to say, you know, terrible things to myself for the next six weeks. And I've got to do 50 spiritual push-ups. And I've got to at least read, you know, Numbers or Leviticus like 10 times. You know, I'm going to have to, then, then after I've really put in my time, then the Lord, no, it doesn't work that way. If you think that's what you have to do in order to have a good standing with the Lord, then you have a deficient view of Jesus on the cross. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, oh, be careful with that, be careful. That's dangerous material right there because somebody's going to hear that and they're going to think that they can go live however they want to. I don't think it's dangerous at all. I think that's one of the failures inside the church is we don't talk about that standing of perfection and our justification enough. That this, is, this is big news. It's obviously you can see it here. And if I think we're honest with each other, I mean, that phrase, you know, verse 14, for by one offering is perfected forever those who are being sanctified. I mean, we feel it's like, ah, perfected. I don't know if I can really say that word about myself or them or her because we're looking at our last mistake, our last sin, but our standing before the Lord is one of being perfected. I'm willing to take the risk of telling people that they've been made perfect in Christ Jesus and there's nothing they can do to make their standing before the Lord any more uh, favorable because I know what that good news does. I know what the grace of God does. Now listen, under the law, you maybe would have a case for it. And maybe that's where some of your thinking is there. Maybe you saw some law thinking going on. But let's read, let's read what verses 15 through 18 tells us. It will set us free to remind each other of this grace and this perfection. Because it was foretold in the new covenant. Verse 15, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us after he said before, this is the covenant. So they had a covenant, but now he's talking about the new covenant. This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Which is to say he was remembering them. If he's talking about something new that's to come and one of the features of the new covenant is I will not remember anymore, then it would stand to reason that under the current covenant he is remembering and so the continual offering of sacrifices, because the sacrifice was not sufficient. But when the sufficient sacrifice comes, then he will not remember, because justice will be totally satisfied in the presence of the Lord. 
Verse 18, now where there's remission of, the, of, the, of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. You can't do anything now. So what is this? This is the new covenant. And what happens in the new covenant? The Lord says, I'm going to write on their hearts. I'm going to put my thoughts in their minds. They're going to be different. Previously, he had written upon stone tablets. But under the new covenant, he writes upon the heart. He writes upon the mind, which is to say, this is what my people are going to do. They're going to obey me. Nobody's going to have to tell their neighbor, hey, do the right thing, because they will all know to do the right thing, because my spirit will dwell in them, and I will write upon their hearts. Now, we might need to be educated in that. We might need to be reminded of that. We might need to dive into that so we can walk in the full blessing of it. But I have no concern of talking and referring to people's justification before the Lord. They're perfect, that there's nothing more they can do. Being afraid that somehow letting them up um, you know, from a, a guilt trip is going to mean they're going to go live a wild life. A true believer, when reminded of God's love and grace, never thinks, I'm going to go sin more now. That's never happened. That's what people who are religious and are not connected with Jesus do. But that's not what's born again, you know, soft-hearted, written upon by the, on your heart by the finger of God. Nobody, they, you don't say that. What you say is, oh, Lord, help me to follow you more. I mean, and this is, you can just, you can test this in your own relationships. You will do for, uh, you know, a, another person because you love them what you would not do um, maybe if the law required it. So, um, I don't know why this is such a, a thing for me. Um, it's probably, I'm going to overstate it. It's not that big of a deal. But, but if I get, one of, my, all right, my, one of my pet peeves is to get in the car and be done with whatever I've been working and on my way home and get halfway and then get a grocery list. It's a pet peeve of mine. Don't tell Rebecca. She doesn't know about this. <laughs> no, she knows about it. Believe me, she knows about it. That's one of my pet peeves. I mean, you could tell, I mean, if you would have told me at 2.30 in the afternoon on your way home, I would be, I'd be okay, that's fine. I'm planning for it. But there's just something about being done and thinking I'm almost home and now realizing oh, I gotta go into the, go in the grocery store. And mind you, she does 99% of all the shopping. This does not happen very often. So this, I'm just saying. But you know, when she says that, because of love, I'm like, okay, all right, I'll do it. And then I'm just like, you know. <laughs> can't you think of these things like at 2.30? And so I you know I'll do it. And she, she knows this. I'm overstating this to make the point. I'm not that bad of a guy. Just a little bad. So, you know, but because of love, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. Law can't, you know, the law can't put that on me. Love does that. So you being told of the grace and the kindness and the love of God that has made you perfect I'm not worried about you hearing that and thinking, well, now I'm really going to go sin. And you've heard me say this several times in through Hebrews. If that's what you think about when you hear of the grace of God, I doubt that you really experience the grace of God in your life. It just doesn't work. Love, love does not work that way. Oh, she loves me. Good. I can really offend her now. No, I don't think you really understand this love. That's, that's not the way it works. So no need to uh, limit the, the comments here. 
Well, Jeremiah, you know, we quoted that. He's quoting from Jeremiah 31 there in verses 19 through 22. Uh, you can go read Jeremiah on your own if you want to. So it's Jer- Jeremiah 31, 33, and read that section. Now, we come to verse 23. He says, let us hold fast our, uh, the confession of our hope without wavering. And that's what was in danger there. They were thinking about um, walking away. So he just calls them and he says, hold fast. For he who promises faithful, you have your eyes on, on Jesus as a Messiah. He's going to come through. This Messiah, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, he's not going to let you down. The promises are going to be realized. He's faithful. Verse 24, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the matter of some. So there were some that were walking away from the church but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So he tells them to hold fast. He then tells them of the importance and the priority of the church. He said we should consider one another to stir up love and good works. You know, this word, this, this word stir up could also be translated provoke. Now stir up is positive, and that's, that, that sounds like a good thing. Provoke is more on the negative side, isn't it? And if you have a brother or sister, you know what it's like to be provoked then. I was very good at that. Ask my sister. She'll tell you. Yeah, I, I just would do what I, I just, I, would, I was bad. I mean, I'm telling you, this true confessions, I'm bad. And I would do things just to get her irritated. <laughs> and um, some would argue that I haven't changed a whole lot. I don't know. But... Um, that would provoke her to certain actions. Now, here it's, it's, let's provoke one another to love and good works. How do you do that? By bringing the law and telling people you don't witness enough, you don't evangelize enough, you don't pray enough, you don't give enough. Maybe you've noticed this, I don't teach that way. I, I don't teach like that. Those are cheap shots. I could make every one of us, me first, guilty by saying you don't pray enough. I, I can hit a home run with that every, every time I stand up. Oh, yeah, I don't do that. But what does that actually do? I don't think that does a whole lot. There's a place to exhort and all the rest. But you know what really works well? As when somebody says, oh, man, I just started Eph- reading Ephesians now. And I've been in this. And I have been getting so much out of the book of Ephesians. I'm like, it's like I've never realized how much, you know, truth and depth that was there. If you haven't been having your quiet time, you know what's going to happen when you hear somebody talking about their quiet time? What's going to happen? I need to have my quiet time. You're provoked. And then even this way, if you talk to somebody and say, man, I got to share with somebody at lunch. As a matter of fact, for the last three weeks, every day on this week, this guy's in the room, and I've been able to share the gospel with them every week. And you're like, man, I got to share the gospel with somebody at work. You're provoked. You know, if a pastor says, hey, you know, our church is, you know, we're doing this outreach or we're going to be going to this country or we're going to be doing this kind of thing. I'm like, really? I'm going to do that too. And I just feel that, I feel that provocation in my life. It's like, you're going to do this? I'm going to do that. I'm going to do it too, but I'm going to do it three times, not just once. I mean, you know, you, you feel provoked to walk in love and good works. Oh, you got to yell at them. I don't think it works. It doesn't work for long. You might get them once or twice, but then they're just going to avoid you. I'm not saying there's not a place to call people to do the right thing. But you know, one way to stir up love and good works is just to live it out. Just, just be loving 
and people will see it. So did you hear that? Husband, wife, mom, dad, kids, just, just do it yourself and watch what God will do. So stir up love and good works. Be consistent in fellowship. He exhorts them not to skip church like some were doing. How often should you go to church? Well, it tells you. Do you see how many times it says? And so much the more as you see the day approaching. That's how often you should go to church. So much the more. I will never tell you you've got to be at church this many times a week. There's too many things going on at this church to go to everything. So you've got to decide what is it that you need to do in order to not punch the ticket, but that you might be provoked to love and good works and that you might have the opportunity to provoke others to love and good works. The mentality that says, well, you know, I, I just really don't need church, you know, more than once a week. I'm, I'm good. I go in there. That's all I need. Listen to how selfish that is. You know, hey, I'm, I'm new, you know, coming to church. What do you got for me? What do we have for you? I don't, what do you have for us? What do we have for each other? This is a, this is a, a mentality that's got to change within the church of Jesus Christ. I'm not even really aiming at anything here, but it's that mentality that only sees what I can get and what I can draw. I, I just need one gathering you know, a week. That's good enough. But what are you giving? What are you provoking? Where are you loving? So the question isn't just, is that all you need so that you can make it through the week and have spiritual thoughts? There's a whole other side of this. Of what are you doing to help other people? And he says this, talks about the, the priority of the church, and he says at the end, as you see the day approaching. So the Lord's return should motivate us to be involved in the life of one another, promoting Jesus Christ and that love for him. And so the Lord exhorts this group of people Stay in contact, stay in fellowship, don't abandon. And the idea, listen, I mean, the verses 24, this is a lot more than you missed a Sunday kind of a, a statement here. This is talking about apostasy, okay? The, verses 24 and 25 are people that are like, we're done with Jesus and we're not going to church anymore. We're not going to the gathering. So this is, this is far more significant than just how many times you're going as I just kind of made the... Uh, an application. It, it, it really is talking about apostasy, but this is important. Church is important. And what we do for others, what is done in our own life, it is an important thing. We're going to share in communion, but here's some things I want you to think about as we prepare. Are you a recipient of the salvation um, that the Lord you know, has for you? Um, are you walking in that sacrifice? Are you living your life in the manner that is consistent with this amazing and with this great salvation? And um, I, I went over a section, verses 19 through 22. And this is an area that talks about coming into the presence of the Lord and being bold and coming in behind the veil. We've talked about this before and fellowshipping with him. He says, let us draw near with a true heart. As we come to the table of the Lord, draw near to Jesus in fellowship. Spend some time with him, even right now. But this is the conclusion. We've been made clean and the opportunity for fellowship is wide open. This is what Jesus has done. This is how being perfected, now we can fellowship with him anytime. 
And so may our, the Lord stir our hearts and draw us into that place. Father, thank you for your kindness and your grace, your love and your mercy. Lord, too often we allow other things to keep us out and we don't come in. We're not drawn in. We're hanging out on the, the outskirts and missing all that you want to bring and do for us. Lord, I pray in this moment you would stir our hearts up. Lord, I pray that you would show us those things that are robbing us of just simple, sweet fellowship, coming behind the veil with you. Lord, as we take of this bread and as we take of this cup and reminded of you that perfect sacrifice that you were given a body and that you did it willingly, I pray, Lord, you remind us of your love and your grace. In the name of Jesus. As the